Hello, and welcome to United for Peace, episode 1.5, Crisis Averted. Welcome back. We are on the final stretch of the UN operation in the Congo now. Last time, I said we were finally back to Gizenga, so let's jump right in. As I mentioned last time, he slipped away to Stanleyville in November 1961. He rallied pro-ANC forces and launched an unsuccessful attack in northern Katanga, once again trying to earn for himself legitimacy as a political leader, which the central government could not by ending the unconstitutional secession. One of the things which make a state nominally legitimate is its ability to maintain territorial integrity in the first place. That is essentially its most basic job, task number one. So it's not insane that Gizenga and many others were outraged by the central government making concessions and promising new constitutions to bring Katanga back in line. This is especially the case, provided there is a strong argument to be made that Katanga's independence was sustainable only by foreign aid and triggered by continued Belgian interference in Congolese affairs. Gizenga withdrew his forces after the Kitona Declaration, but he himself did not recognize it. This effectively indicated his own secessionist or otherwise treasonous plans although he did not yet declare his own government like he had before. Tensions rapidly escalated between pro-Gizenga and pro-Mobutu slash Kosovo troops, and between Gizenga's followers and the United Nations. Gizenga and his followers, essentially, were of the opinion that the Republic of the Congo was now a Western puppet, and that the UN facilitated the transition from recently free state to puppet. And they were desperate to take matters into their own hands to truly free the Congo and quash the Belgian-masterminded Katanga secession. So on November 11th, 1961, 13 Italian airmen delivering armored cars for a Malayan battalion near Kindu were surrounded by rebellious pro-Gizenga troops. These troops at first thought the Italian planes were Katangese, since their comrades in northern Katanga had been bombed regularly, and rumors spread of Katangese parachute troops incoming soon. There were no Katangese parachutists coming, but the rebellious soldiers were too riled up now to simply stand down. Surely something had to be up here. With more and more soldiers coming in and increasingly menacing the airmen, the Italians attempted to barricade themselves in the canteen where they were sat for lunch with the Malayan commander and his aide. The Gizenga's troops started demanding that all armored vehicles and weapons be surrendered to them. Turned down, they made their way into the canteen and rounded everyone up. They began demanding the surrender of all armored cars from the Malayan battalion, which their comrades had also surrounded at this point. The Malayan commander managed to enter negotiations with the colonel nominally in charge of the renegade ANC troops, but this colonel told him frankly that there was little he could do. He had almost no control over the troops whatsoever, hence the word nominally there. The Malayan commander called upon help from General Lundula and Antoine Gizenga to resolve the situation. An aide of Lundula was sent from Leopoldville, but the ANC colonel refused to work with him, saying his coming from Leopoldville made him suspect. Reed, representing that Western puppet regime, made him suspect. This may have been why the dubiously trustworthy Gizenga was called upon in the first place. But by this time, the Italians had already been hauled off. One of them was actually already shot and killed trying to escape, 
but his body was loaded onto the truck with the surviving 12. They were taken to a prison in uptown Kindu, shot, and then... Some things I'd rather not force you all to listen to right now. If you want to learn more about their gruesome fate, look up Kindu Atrocity. The Malayan officer was released and the guard around the battalion lifted, but the Italian airmen were killed. Numerous excuses were given for their execution. All absurd. Their remains, not bodies, were not found until February 1962. The official story given to anyone who asked originally was that they were taken to prison and had escaped, though no one had any clues about their whereabouts, suspiciously. When Onuk began preparations to disarm the rogue ANC troops around Kindu, it sparked such outrage in the Congo parliament that there was actually violence inside the chamber. Cyril Adula then held a closed session of the legislature, after which he denounced the UN's attempt to disarm the soldiers, Western puppet indeed. Onuk relented. Nonetheless, on January 13, 1962, fighting broke out between combatants loyal to Leopoldville and Gizenga. Prime Minister Adula called upon the UN to disarm rebel forces, which they could readily do as per Security Council Resolution 161, enabling them to quote-unquote prevent civil war. Ironic, yes, but I shan't say more. With five companies of ANC troops, an Ethiopian Onuk battalion, along with detachments from two other Ethiopian units totaling 980 men, General Lundula was sent to Stanleyville and placed Gizenga under house arrest on January 14th. Disarmament of Gizenga's troops was a mostly smooth process, although nothing ever goes entirely smoothly in wartime. It did not take long for the Congolese parliament to formally strip Gizenga of his office. He was transported to Leopoldville and then to Bulambemba, an island at the mouth of the Congo River, for imprisonment. And so, after a few months of build-up and a few days of fighting, the Kizenga crisis was wrapped up surprisingly easily. I know after all that build-up, it must be quite satisfying to hear that's how it ended. And so, Onuk could shift its attention almost entirely to dealing with Katanga, along with its routine duties. With the parliamentary shenanigans and objections of Moise Chombe stalling out the Kitona agreement in Katanga, it already seemed as though the secessionist state may fall through on its promises. This especially seemed to be the case when Onuk intelligence picked up on the arrival of 35 suspected mercenaries in Brazzaville on January 8, 1962, who then planned to fly to Ndola. Information gathered indicated clear intent to fight for copper-rich southern Katanga. The Katangese Gendarmerie began setting up strong defensive positions in southern Katanga around this time as well, centered on the towns of Jadovi, Kolwezi, and Bulkeya. They had approximately 5,150 troops in this area and 2,000 set up in Elizabethville. Following the deadlock between Chombe and Dadula, and an end to negotiations over the Kitona Agreement in particular, Utant sent a plan for national reconciliation to both parties in August. It called for the creation of a federated state and provided details for how Katanga could reintegrate into the Congo under such a scheme. Adula accepted on August 23rd, and Chombe accepted on September 3rd. So, despite the mercenaries and the gendarmerie activity, 
it still seemed like a political solution was perhaps possible, especially since no hostilities had resumed. However, Chombe's duplicitous nature was well known and established at this time, so following ascension by both parties, Wu Tant applied pressure towards enactment of the agreement by sending out a detailed timetable for the phased implementation of it, with the following actions to be taken if Chombe did not adhere to it. The government of the Congo would request for any interested government to temporarily ban all imports of copper and cobalt from Katanga, and request that said governments take any available actions to ensure compliance with this request, and quote, assist in achieving the intended results, end quote, i.e. the reintegration of Katanga into a federal Congo. The timetable, along with the proposed actions to ensure compliance, were set in place to ensure Chombe's compliance with the agreement, obviously. But even with these, it does not seem that Utant had any faith in Chombe here. He sent Ralph Bunch to Leopoldville in October to draw up plans with the latest chief of mission, Robert Gardiner, and Force Commander Sean McKeon to achieve freedom of movement for Onuk throughout Katanga if the latter continued to deny said freedom. Plans would include the elimination of mercenaries and, quote, assist national unity, end quote. Now, asserting freedom of movement here is a slick way of justifying offensive action under the guise of defensive action. The peacekeepers have to move to various locations for lawful duties, after all, and they will likely encounter hostile forces that they will then have to subdue, especially if you plan to move to the thorniest locations for Katanga. By October, when these plans were being drawn up, mercenary strength had returned to pre-Rump Punch and Morthor levels, so between 300 and 500 men. Intelligence uncovered evidence that Katanga had procured more aircraft and built new runways as well as fortified positions. At the same time, the Katangese escalated their harassment of Onuk personnel and consulate members of troop-contributing countries. Just to be clear, Chombe has once again agreed to a plan to peacefully come to terms with the central government of the Congo, and immediately directed or allowed those under his command to menace Onuk. As he has many times before, he made promises he had no intention of ever keeping. By the end of December 1962, Katanga once again opened hostilities against Onuk. On December 24th, on December 24th, Katangi's forces opened fire on UN personnel all over Elizabethville. The shooting lasted for four days. During these four days, Onuk forces simply hunkered down, even refusing to fire back. The UN tried its best to reach a ceasefire and continue political negotiations, as it was firmly committed to establishing and maintaining peace, as the word peacekeeping implies. This was despite taking several casualties and losing a helicopter to hostile fire. On the 28th, however, General Prem Chand, commander of Onuk forces in Katanga, launched Operation Grand Slam. This was the most intense offensive operation undertaken by Onuk throughout the entire operation. The independent Indian brigade quickly captured key points throughout Elizabethville, including the radio tower, again, and presumably the post office, although I have not seen that explicitly included in any sources. The following morning, Ethiopian troops captured a roadblock, which had been the source of fire against them since the 24th. 
in northern Katanga, Swedish and Ghanaian forces captured Kaminaville. By December 30th, Onuk achieved all objectives for Phase 1 of Grand Slam. Then a funny thing happened on the way to Jadovi. Onuk commanders and the soldiers under them were unaware that Utant assured the British and Belgians that UN forces would not cross the Lufira River, which lies just a little east of Jadovi, and divided the city from Elizabethville. The Secretary General's rationale was fear that, should UN forces cross the river, Chombe or the Gendarmerie on its own initiative would destroy Union Minier property in retaliation. This would be an enormous loss for the economic viability of the Congo, recoverable only at great cost, and would also be a minor international incident of its own. So it's not completely unreasonable that Utant might make such a promise, but that's kind of the sort of thing you want to inform your military commanders about if you intend on keeping your promises. Given Onuk's success in Elizabethville, General Prem Chand thought it simply made sense to push right along with Phase 2 of Grand Slam. On December 30th, he received a telegram from the Secretary General himself congratulating him on his conduct during the operation, and he had authorization to advance along the road between Elizabethville and Jadoville. So on December 31st, he and the 4th Madras Rifles and the Rajputana Rifles started moving out from Elizabethville. They met only light resistance on the move and reached the east bank of the Lufira on January 3rd. Resistance at this time was still weak, but the main bridge across the river had been demolished by Kantagi's forces. However, by a stroke of amazing luck, these regiments found that a railway bridge just seven miles upstream had also been demolished, but the rails themselves were still well enough intact and, importantly, above the water for the infantry to cross. Brigadier Reginald Norona, commanding these regiments at the time, was never going to pass on such an incredible tactical opportunity. The Rajputana rifles rapidly crossed the river and neutralized all opposition in the area. Following this, the Madrashis located a nearby raft, called in a Sikorsky helicopter, and got most of their jeeps and heavy equipment across. This move so surprised the mercenaries in the area that Katangi's resistance simply collapsed, and Arona's forces decided that it was only logical to advance on Jadovi itself and take it rather than sit on a vulnerable bridgehead. He did not contact headquarters before doing this, he simply took the town and then notified Katanga Command what he had accomplished. This whole incident, of course, embarrassed Utant, and a UN spokesman said that while Nerona's move was, quote, brilliantly executed, it regretfully demonstrated, quote, for the first time in the experience of Onuk, a serious breakdown in effective communication and coordination between United Nations headquarters and the Leipoldville office, end quote. Now, this is obviously a load of crap. I mean, O'Brien and Hammersheld had quite an episode over the unauthorized Operation Morthor. But I digress. Bunch concluded that those acting on their own were not intentionally defying upper authorities, they simply were not made aware of the high-level political dimensions of the situation they themselves were in the middle of. Bunch warned, quote, that once a fighting situation develops, and particularly when a plan is being executed in an area of combat activity, 
efforts to regulate the details of military moves and tactics by political leaders at headquarters may put many men's lives in jeopardy. Once a military action is on foot, there can be no push-button action at headquarters to control that action in response to political or other considerations without doing violence to sound military judgment and tactics at serious cost to the security of the troops involved and of the local population, end quote. In other words, the politicos can't meddle in military affairs underway without jeopardizing the soldiers and the civilians around them, to put it mildly. Things turned out fine, though. I mean, fine relative to the absolute catastrophe that was the Congo crisis, the effects of which are still very much felt today in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. No one engaged in large-scale sabotage of Union Minier property. Katanga's, and consequently the Congo's, economic base was secure. Hypothetically, of course. After January 4th, Kolwezi was the only remaining stronghold of Katangi's resistance. Chombe fled there with gendarmes and carried on with his typical firebrand rhetoric. However, it was increasingly clear for all involved that his position was untenable. Rather than risking another successful Onuk offensive, he arranged for the peaceful entrance of Onuk forces into Kolwezi, and UN troops arrived on January 21st. Armed resistance finally broken, the plan of national reconciliation proceeded. Onuk's force diminished as units rotated out were simply not replaced. The operation was winding down now. National reconciliation started with the Katangese provincial government finally recognizing, in reality, the authority of the central government, with the central government granting Chombe amnesty for the sake of peace. Officers of the Katangese gendarmerie were folded into the ANC, and Belgian advisors continued to occupy key posts. Does this sound like brewing conditions for a national takeover by Chombe? Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. A couple of rebellions broke out in 1963, lasting until 1964 and 1965, but Onuk played no role in suppressing them. Onuk troops, with orders to withdraw, were stranded by the Simba Rebellion in eastern Congo, but they only had to get out. Again, they did not intervene in the rebellion. Onuk did play a part in the Kwilu Rebellion, but only to evacuate endangered civilians mostly Christian missionaries. After nearly a century of draconian Belgian rule and apparent exploitation by Western powers, a lot of Congolese natives were just fed up with all things European or American. But since Onuk's only role here was to evacuate civilians and not to suppress the rebellions, these are kind of outside the scope of our show here. The last UN peacekeepers departed in the summer of 1964. Last to depart were troops from the 1st Nigerian Battalion and some from the 57th Canadian Signals, who flew out on June 30th. And that concludes the United Nations operation in the Congo. Up to this point, it was the single largest UN peacekeeping mission, and no mission of even similar scale and magnitude would be attempted for decades. Now, don't worry, we ourselves are not finished just yet. Next time I want to go over some aftermath of the operation, and we will also touch upon the neglected civilian side of the mission, as well as political controversies and the mission's legacy. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time on United for Peace. (laughs) 